for me, it's been a really um, interesting experience, both being a person who lives with a disability and uh, a student of health sciences. And I think, you know, one of the takeaways for me is that there's huge scope for the, you know, disability community to get more involved in uh, research in you know, producing, consuming, transmitting research, uh, because it, it, it impacts us so greatly. More than 6 million Canadians live with a disability, and many are especially vulnerable to the impact of COVID-19. While having a disability alone does not always put someone at a higher risk for getting COVID-19, if they do get it, they are at a higher risk for severe illness. People with disabilities experience unique challenges compared to people without disabilities. For example, the need to interact with more healthcare providers, it may not be as easy to wash their hands frequently, and access to everyday activities are disrupted. In this episode of Rehab Inc.'s podcast, COVID-19 miniseries, we are interested in the experiences of people with disabilities and the unique challenges that this pandemic has brought. Great. So hi, everyone. Welcome to the Rehab Inc. podcast. My name is Annalisa Cardenas. And I'm David Houston. And we are both alumni of the Rehabilitation Sciences Institute at the University of Toronto. Today, we are joined by Dr. Susan Jaglow and John Shepard to discuss the impact of COVID-19 on people living with disabilities. Dr. Jaglow is the Interim Chair and Professor in the Department of Physical Therapy at the University of Toronto with cross-appointments to the Rehabilitation Sciences Institute and the Institute for Health Policy, Management, and Evaluation. She holds the Toronto Rehabilitation Institute University Health Network Chair at the University of Toronto and is also the academic lead for training in the AgeWell Networks of Centres of Excellence. Dr. Jagula, thank you so much for joining us. Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and some of your research interests? Thanks, David. Um, I'm a health services researcher and an epidemiologist by training. Now with COVID-19, everybody knows what an epidemiologist is. One of my main areas of research is actually uh, spinal cord injury, where I've done work both on the epidemiology of, of spinal cord injury and also um, on the, the main piece of work is on developing an online self-management program, which our team has been doing for, I'd say, the last the last few years. And and so that we're developing and, and evaluating an intervention. And um, I I think that that project I always say is sort of near and dear to my heart. There's uh, a lot of moving pieces. There's a lot of community involvement, a lot of involvement from stakeholders. So it's not your traditional research project. And so we've really learned a lot, I'd say, uh, through that uh, through that process. Yes. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Jaglal. We're really excited to learn about that amazing program. And we are also joined by John Shepard. John is a PhD student in the Rehabilitation Sciences Institute at the University of Toronto. John is motivated by a desire to better understand the impact of spinal cord injury and similar disabilities at the level of the health system and health policy. He is also an advocate for issues of concern to people living with disabilities. John has been living with a spinal cord injury for 15 years and appreciates the impact of a well-informed and responsive healthcare system. 
He is an active community volunteer and has served on the boards of Toronto Rehab and Spinal Cord Injury Ontario. So thanks for coming to John. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself as well? Sure. Yeah. Thanks, guys, for the invitation. So I'm a student at RSI and uh, finishing my master's, starting my PhD. My work, I guess, falls in the area of uh, health services and policy research and really looking at questions of basic epidemiology and spinal cord injury. So um, things like, you know, how many people have spinal cord injury and what are they like? You know, it turns out we don't, or we know less than we would like to know about things like that. So for my master's thesis, I used a database of primary care medical records, so electronic medical records taken from uh, family doctor's offices across the province to identify cases of spinal cord injury. So we can first of all say, who are these people? And, and uh, uh, like so many questions in health research, uh, you know, it, it's much less obvious than you would think at first. Having done that, I'm in my PhD, I'm looking to um, dig into that more deeply. Uh, so assemble a, a rich picture using uh, data from different sources of the population of people living in Ontario with spinal cord injury, and then looking in detail at their experience of the healthcare system over time, and ultimately how that could be improved. Um, so, you know, obviously with my lived experience, that work is very close to my heart. I've also been involved in the health coaching project that um, Susan mentioned, uh, and that's another piece of work that's really uh, dear to me, and I'm excited about how that's grown and how uh, a group of people, really a, a sort of community of practice, has come together over time, and, and I guess I'm hoping we'll have a chance to talk more about that. Thank you both for taking part in this conversation with us. Our focus for today's episode is to gain a better understanding of the impact the COVID-19 pandemic has had on the lives of people living with disabilities. Prior to the onset of the pandemic, people living with disabilities may have already faced unique challenges. So our first question is, for those of us who may have been previously unaware, how has this pandemic illuminated and exacerbated some of the pre-existing health inequities and what new challenges has it introduced? Okay, but I'm going to turn that one over over to John because he he made some really tough decisions in, in terms of how to deal with the pandemic in in the early days when infection rates were, were really high. And and I think, um, I don't know, John, putting you on the spot here. Yeah, but... oh, no, no, happy, happy to do that. And I guess the, the I just, um, you know, preface by saying that I speak from my own experience, which means that it's just my experience. Um, so I don't want to hold myself up as the representative for everyone living with disability. Obviously, everyone's circumstances are different um, and their choices are different and their options, you know, the options available to them are very different. So but for what it's worth, you know, from my experience, um, I took COVID really seriously, uh, really early. It, it was, I mean, first of all, it was, it was fascinating as a person who studies epidemiology and, and, you know, in my sort of professional life, I'm trying to cut my teeth on these different uh, methods and approaches and analytical techniques. And all of a sudden, boom, it's in the front pages. Um, so it was simultaneously fascinating, but also, you know, quite concerning. People may have seen the Johns Hopkins COVID map that I think has disappeared, but early on, everyone was staring at all the time. And I remember refreshing it one evening and uh, as the numbers were just skyrocketing everywhere and having this weird kind of experience of like a head rush of just thinking, wow, this is, this is real. This is going to change you know, everything, all of our lives. So specific to people with disabilities, uh, certainly with spinal cord injury, 
Uh, there was initially a lot of concern about uh, our degree of vulnerability. It was clear, you know, from the experience in China that uh, people, elderly people, and and uh, you know, people with health conditions were at risk. And we know uh, certainly that um, people with spinal cord injury don't do well, for instance, with pneumonia, particularly people with higher level injuries who have, um, you know, compromised breathing muscles. So there was reason to believe that this was really a, you know, a, a exceptionally dangerous situation. So I decided to do everything possible to limit all risk, which basically meant, you know, like a complete hermetic uh, lockdown. Uh, my roommate moved out. Uh, we managed to find a, an arrangement uh, for him that was good. And most importantly, I stopped having people come into my house every day to help me, which was part of my daily routine. So, you know, for my morning routine for two and a half hours for cleaning, uh, you know, vacuuming, uh, laundry, stuff like that. And, and I just completely cut that off. I also, you know, wasn't getting deliveries of any kind. So I was doing all my own meal prep and, and all these kind of activities of daily living, which are ordinarily, you know, challenging for people who have, you know, different kinds of functional impairments. And so it was really brutal. Like the first, you know, month or so of COVID was just insane because I basically had no bandwidth, you know, for, uh, for work or anything else. Cause I was just kind of getting through my day, you know, I, I, I mean, I wasn't going to the laundry room in my building. So I was like, you know, every part of my daily routine was like washing my socks and hanging them somewhere to dry and stuff. It's kind of ridiculous, but looking back, you know, it, it was also kind of like independence boot camp for me. It was like that, you know, uh, enriched like rehab, you know, kind of skills stuff that I would have done if I'd had more time in rehab, but didn't. And so, um, you know, I certainly got something out of that long term, but it was a massive challenge. Now what's, you know, changed over time. I mean, some of that remains, and, and I think it's probably worth talking at some point about the systemic issues this raises for all people with disabilities, because where existing uh, sort of programs, services, accommodations might have been in place, a lot of those things went away, at least temporarily. Um, and so life became a lot more difficult and a lot more complicated. And in some cases, those accommodations were kind of like bolt-ons. And so all of a sudden, you know, when other parts of society need to change in terms of how do you get into the grocery store or how do you get access to, you know, the pharmacy, when plans are changed on the fly, the needs of people with disabilities are not always taken into consideration. So, you know, you find your vulnerability only increased in an already vulnerable situation. So that's really important. But for me personally, what's helped in, in part over time is precisely the fact that as a, you know, a student of rehabilitation science and, and health science more generally, uh, with access to journals, with, you know, my finger somewhat on the pulse of research, I've been able to track, you know, knowledge as it's been emerging. And so that's really helped me. So, you know, first, the, the very first case study of a person with spinal cord injury with COVID came out of Italy in, um, I think it was probably late April, early May. And since then, there's been a case series out of Spain and little bits of information trickling out. And overall, I mean, it, you know, the, this is all incredibly preliminary and tiny sample sizes and, you know, not much better than knowing nothing, but at least the indication is that it's not like a, you know, an immediate death sentence that people with spinal cord injury get COVID and, you know, have, have a clinical course that in some cases is, is uh, more favorable than one might expect. And, you know, there's interesting theories about why that might be, what, you know, having to do with what COVID actually is, you know, to what extent is it respiratory versus inflammatory or something, you know, multisystemic and how does that affect the specific kind of way that people with spinal cord injuries are, are, are kind of set up. But uh, bottom line, I'm, I'm not as terrified any longer. And so I've been, you know, slowly 
reintegrating my normal life. And um, I guess the other challenge for me has just been, again, because of my what I do for a living, that I've had a lot more work um, on top of all my normal work. Early on, we realized that there, you know, people were talking about hand hygiene. And of course, the issues of hand hygiene are very different for people um, who use wheelchairs, you know, whether you're uh, moving uh, your, your power wheelchair around with a joystick, or if you're propelling your manual wheelchair with your hands, there is a really different set of considerations around hand hygiene. So our project team, the, the project team that has been working on the self-management project, uh, Susan uh, introduced, um, we kind of banded together and really quickly, like in, in the space of about two weeks, put together uh, a, an infographic on hand hygiene for people with uh, people who use wheelchairs and got it out there. And it turns out it went kind of around the world uh, overnight because there is a real need for that information. So, yeah, I've been happy to be able to get involved in projects like that. And we're doing another kind of special project right now to create an online resource for people with spinal cord injury who need to be admitted to hospital to acute care. Uh, which is also sort of COVID-inspired and, and, and funded by a COVID grant. So, you know, there's more work and less time. But um, as I say, I, I think I'm, I'm personally getting now to something of an equilibrium, as so many of us are, but it's, it's, been, a, it's been a real challenge. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Well, one of the things that you were mentioning about the hand hygiene, and I actually recall seeing you share that infographic on social media. Um, and so do, do you mind maybe just kind of explaining a little bit or elaborating a little bit more about that that infographic, how you developed it, sort of why it's so important and how maybe, you know, we I haven't really thought about, you know, using like accessibility devices and having to bring that into your home when you're going out in the community and sort of not be able to really separate your outside experiences from your safe space inside. Uh, could you maybe just elaborate a little bit more on that? Those maybe some other strategies that, you know, people who use wheelchairs might employ to kind of help prevent the risk. Yeah, by all means. Hand hygiene was seen early on as the absolute baseline for, for protection. Um, if you think about it, if you use a manual wheelchair, for example, then it's extremely difficult. Like, you know, people may not know this, but you don't actually push the wheels. You push what are called push rims, which are sort of adjacent to the tire of the wheelchair. But it's exceptionally difficult, especially if you've got, you know, some degree of impairment, as I do, because uh, I have uh, tetraplegia or quadriplegia um, to your hands, to really avoid touching the wheels. And the wheels are all constantly touching the ground, of course. So what that means is that as soon as you leave your living space, your hands are really coming into contact with a lot of you know, potentially contaminated surfaces. So, you know, the, the countermeasure for that is a pretty elaborate cleaning procedure that, you know, when you come in the house, you wipe down your push rims, you clean your tires in addition to your hands and forearms. And you have to be very careful if you use gloves, as most people do, about what to do with those and, and so forth. And similarly, if you use a power wheelchair, you need to you know be mindful about uh, cleaning the joystick and other control areas and surfaces you might touch. So that's a whole set of techniques that's kind of, you know, unknown to the to the general public. And that early on made going out you know, a huge pain because you'd have to go through this cleaning procedure that initially took me like 15 minutes, you know, when I came inside the house. Now, in, in, in the interest of full disclosure, I will admit that I no longer do that. And that's in part, you know, because um, I have a lower kind of um, sense of the risk profile in just, you know, because of where we are in, in numbers uh, of cases and, and, you know, what you can assume about how sort of virulent the, the, the COVID viruses out, outside. Um, also, because so we've some, seen some research, you know, sort of downplaying the importance of, of what are called fomites, so spread by contact on services versus, you know, airborne uh, or other forms of transmission. 
so, but, but, you know, early on, I used to tell people I assumed, uh, and this is where, you know, in the early days of March and April, I just kind of, you know, assumed that as soon as I opened the door to my apartment, everything outdoors was just covered in COVID because it seemed like the safe assumption to make. But yeah, I, I think that's an illustration of how, you know, there's a whole set of, you know, techniques that people may not know about, the general public may not realize, and the people, you know, who use wheelchairs need to be informed about. So, so to your point about how we created the infographic, it was really kind of crowdsourced. Like we all contributed our own information uh, where there were published or authoritative sources. We shared them. But for the most part, this was just taken from people's own life experience and ingenuity. And we you know, combined that. And I worked with a graphic designer uh, who, again, is a person living with, with quadriplegia. You know, and uh, and then we got it out through our networks. And it's one of those things that just kind of happened, I think, you know, because the, the need was so great. Um, and, and the response was really, uh, was helpful. Yeah, that's really great. Thank you for sharing that. And I really like how you use the medium of infographics to share that information, because I, f- I find that having those pieces of information in a way that's easy to understand is so much more effective than having to go through the literature and compare different papers and see what the best implementation strategy is. So that's amazing work. So, John, you spoke a little bit about how some services went away during the lockdown. And Dr. Jaglel and John, you're both experts in health services and epidemiology. So how has access to healthcare changed during COVID-19 for people with disabilities? I think where we've seen major drops in services is in outpatient services because hospitals basically closed down outpatient services. You also saw with primary care, everything moved to online visits. The only thing kind of open was like emergency departments. But then people were scared to go to hospitals because the rate of infection was much higher in hospitals. So the sort of the fallout of um, all, all of this for anybody with a disability or any chronic condition, uh, there was reduced access to services. So people then didn't get the care that that they needed. And so some of the things that we see now is actually higher rates of heart attacks and um, patients with uh, with cancer, for example, not not being able to access their therapies. So so that you're you're seeing much um, greater progression in, in in the disease. So basically, any sort of preventive services and outpatient treatments kind of just disappeared during during this this pandemic. And now, as health services researchers were asking, what happened to all of these people? Where did they all go? So so there's a huge body of research on that now in terms of looking at like sort of balancing the um, the measures that we put in, in in place to bring the infection rate down with respect to COVID. And, and so we, we're now at a point where we're not overwhelming the healthcare system. The fallout from that is at what, at what point do we start introducing these services that, that people actually need? And at what point are people going to be comfortable actually going back out into society and, you know, going to participating in, in, in healthcare services that are actually needed. So your chances of, you know, dying from 
uh, heart attack is now much higher than contracting contracting COVID if if you had a, a pre-existing condition. And and we've seen like emergency. There was a report that came out of Kai Hai on Monday, and emergency department visits dropped like twenty percent. And it wasn't just the people who um, had the lower acuity conditions where they saw that 20% drop. It was 20% like across, across the board. So again, uh, people being very fearful and then not accessing services when they should. So, so it'll be interesting to see how that, how that plays out in the future. So again, we're at the point now where we're going to be stuck with COVID. So we have to, we have to actually start learning to live with it. And because um, certainly it, it's, it's not going away anytime soon. Anything to add, John? Sure. So, so the issue of ER visits, I think, is, is really interesting. People living with spinal cord injury, um, as we know for, from our research, literally our research we've done in our lab, are you know, notorious frequent flyers, as they say tend to show up at ER, in ER a lot because they have problems that, you know, the healthcare system tends to direct that way. One part of this perhaps is not so bad, which is that um, I know a lot of people, certainly I myself, have been doing everything possible to avoid needing to go to ER. So I've been super vigilant about a lot of my own kind of you know, self-management or self-care practices um, that I know, you know, prevent me from, from needing needed to go to the hospital. And that's maybe not a bad thing. But on the other side of the coin, in addition to you know emergency services, regular surveillance has fallen off because it, 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 you know, it's part of the sort of outpatient services that have been constrained or curtailed. And so I've missed out this year on regular surveillance, you know, for instance, urological surveillance. Now, um, I'm hoping, of course, that uh, I can get away with it and I'll go back next year and everything will be fine. But statistically, we know that that surveillance is important. And if it goes away for a large number of people, some of those people will have problems. There are, you know, issues that won't get caught. You know, their urological maintenance may suffer. And so I think there is the danger over time um, that in various ways, whether it's from people not going to emerge uh, to deal with, you know, urgent things or whether it's from people losing out on the uh, ongoing surveillance and management, you know, that that's important to keep them healthy, you know, there will be kind of, uh, you know, ripple, a ripple effect, right, of consequences into the future from this disruption. And, and I think, you know, it'll be a challenge to the health system, not only to get through COVID and deal with the immediate effects of COVID, but to deal with these larger systemic issues that, you know, kind of require rethinking healthcare uh, from end to end. I think you raise a good point there about, you know, rethinking that healthcare. And we kind of maybe um, sort of saw in the response to COVID-19 and how it considered different groups of people that maybe, you know, this healthcare system doesn't necessarily benefit everyone as equally. And so I guess kind of what a question I want to ask there is, is there, how did the response to COVID-19 consider people with disabilities or did it, um, was there maybe... Um, some pandemic guidelines that directly or indirectly favored individuals without disabilities. I mean, the one thing I can I can say there is that understanding that everyone was scrambling and and doing the best they could, that the extreme cases or exceptional cases 
you know, are the ones that people don't think of immediately. I mean, that's kind of understandable. But it means that when you suddenly uh, impose dramatic uh, limits on, you know, people bringing visitors into hospital or being accompanied going into hospital in the interest of reducing spread, understandably, then the case of someone who needs uh, assistance, right, who literally um, may need a, a family member or support worker to be there with them, in some cases for their survival, right, if they've, uh, you know, if they're if they're on a vent and and you know they they may need uh, management of that, or just to get around a building that may not be fully accessible. You know, I think in practice, many of those instances were able to be resolved by people advocating for themselves, but I'm not certain that they were all. I think there, there were quite possibly or, or likely cases where people, you know, weren't able to receive the health care they needed because their their attendant or support worker or family member wasn't able to be there with them. So, and I guess the other thing is it, it shouldn't have to be on people to advocate for themselves, you know, when they're like everyone else trying to survive in the middle of a pandemic uh, and fight those kind of systemic barriers. So again, I understand how, you know, this is more a matter of oversight than malice, but when you're on the receiving end, it kind of doesn't matter. Yeah, I would agree with that, John. I think my sense is was, it was almost a forgotten group. Everybody was it, it was so, you know, and 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 I, and I agree with you that it wasn't done out of of malice. I think it was more done out of ignorance and not um, understanding sort of the implications of of some of those decisions, especially around the caregiving, for example, and putting in those types of restrictions. And and again, too, that's where this issue comes up with the with the community around social isolation. And, and how that's probably with this pandemic has been exacerbated in uh, persons uh, living with, with a disability because of the nature of, of some of these um, decisions or policies that are in place. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. Do you do you think that like this this result of this prolonged social isolation, like will that have a negative impact on quality of life or functional independence or even physical kind of conditioning moving forward just based on this prolonged time at home and kind of the the pretty intense restrictions that were were laid down, sort of blanket restrictions across all of the population without necessarily considering how it might impact some people more than others? Hmm. That's a really good question. And I, I, I haven't, there's a great research project. I haven't seen <laughs> um, anybody do the follow-up on that, on, on that yet in, in, in terms of um, what the results would look like. One could hypothesize that there, there would be a negative, some, you know, more negative outcomes, uh, lower uh, functional status by sort of some of our traditional measures. But, but I don't, I, I don't know empirically if if that um, if that is the case. Yeah, I mean, I actually think it, it's fascinating to think about because on the one hand, you're right. There's every reason to suspect that if people um, don't have access, for instance, to exercise programs or forms of social participation, or even just you know the ability to to go out and move about freely, that would have an impact. As it is, I think across all of society. But as Susan says, we don't really know. Anecdotally, I can say that people we work with have expressed a variety of, you know, emotions, strong emotions, um, again, similar to all of us. But here's, I, 
I think, and I want to be careful about this, but I think there's a, a bit of a counter narrative that's interesting to think about. And when I say I want to be careful, I don't want to take away from the genuine concerns about the negative impacts on the community of COVID. But there's a an interesting set of uh, kind of opposing dynamics that are you know worth thinking about. So um, what I mean is that people who live with a disability, certainly with spinal cord injury, if their mobility is impaired, they know what it is to to be restricted to home, right? They have a lot of experience with it. We have a lot of experience with it. And um, hopefully, in most cases, you know, I've gotten kind of good at it. And to that extent, I feel in some senses, like um, it, maybe in a limited way, uh, some of us have had a bit of a competitive advantage <laughs> almost in dealing with COVID. And I think, honestly, that's part of the secret behind how, you know, this project, you know, as a little microcosm of the community, you know, this community of practice, we've been able to re be galvanized and double down on our work together and made a lot of progress. Um, individually, the coaches working with their participants and as a group kind of, you know, keeping the trial on on track, on course, on time, and hopefully deliver, delivering a successful intervention. So I think that's kind of neat to think about. And there's also something I will confess to <laughs> that I want to make clear is not the same thing as, it's not like schadenfreude, which is like taking joy in the, you know, uh, misfortunes of others. It's not that at all. But what I've noticed is that you know, a persistent sense of, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the term FOMO, fear of missing out. Uh, it's something that's, you know, very, um, that's triggered by social media, I think, when you see uh, how awesome people's lives are, at least as they present them on social media. And look, I'll confess to the fact that, you know, since living with disability, I do have a sense of missing out um, on things I would love to be doing. And I'm not, um, again, as we all do. But that's been different. Like I've kind of had a sense of being in the same place as, you know, a lot of my non-disabled colleagues and friends um, in a different way, I guess, since the pandemic. And that's been interesting. And I would almost say that for me, at the same time that I've been very, you know, physically distant and apart from people, that has lessened some of the sense of isolation that I think I felt previously. So that's why I say there's a bit of a counter narrative. And again, I don't want to say that that discounts the real struggles that many people have uh, had and continue to have. But I think there's, you know, I don't know if it's quite a silver lining, but there's certainly something, some another part of it to think about. Yeah, for sure. Thank you for sharing that insight. It's It always helps, I think, to have a more positive, optimistic outlook, especially now when I think months ago I thought, oh, like this will be over soon. It'll blow over. But you know, I think we're starting to hit a little bit of that wall where it's like, okay, this is a new reality that we just have to learn how to deal with. So on that note, since you were both involved in creating a virtual support and mindfulness program to help people with spinal cord injuries cope during COVID-19, can you tell us a little bit more about this project and how it was developed? Okay, I, I guess the um, this this whole idea came about, because like I said earlier, we're one of our main research projects is this online self-management program. And um, our main intervention is actually um, health coaching. We were basically the, you know, the study team. We were having our weekly Zoom meeting. And a number of our study staff are actually persons living with uh, spinal cord injury. And at the start of one of our regular meetings, we just started talking about the issues people were facing pretty much that first week that COVID hit and we were 
all told we had to be in in lockdown. So so we just kind of had a like a really very open discussion, and, and and some of our study staff were were saying how how it's been difficult um, for them, um, how people were very concerned about you know personal support workers being in long term care homes, and also then taking care of of them, and you then have a higher probability of becoming infected. So what uh, cautions should be taken? So we we realize then that this is going to be a considerable issue for people, and maybe there's something we can do about it. So at the same time, through our project, the one of the funding bodies, the Craig Nielsen Foundation, put out a call for proposals for they called it an emergency relief fund. And they were looking for proposals for initiatives that uh, researchers could do that would support uh, people living with spinal cord injury. So, so we thought this would be a, a nice opportunity to do something. So I'm going to turn it over to John, because the idea for the mindfulness actually came from one of our other study meetings with our health coaches. Right. So at the same time that the study team was talking about the issues people were facing and and what could be done and, and that this opportunity came to our attention, we had been meeting in the afternoons on Friday with our health coaches. So these are the people actually delivering the intervention online, and they've been doing so for a while now. This is a program that's you know gone through a couple of phases over a number of years. And um, all the coaches are peers, which is to say people living with spinal cord injury. And as I said, that kind of community of practices come together and, and we become very close uh, to each other in the work that we've done developing this program and supporting each other as people work with their participants. And we were all hit, as everyone was, by, uh, by you know, the, the sort of the pandemic's sudden descent on our society. And so we tried to address that among the coaches by making use of the skills of one of our coaches a woman named Mary Jo Federley, who you know has a has really a fascinating set of life experiences and skills that she brings to the table. One of which is um, that she's a yogi, so she has been leading yoga and, and mindfulness practice for many years, uh, well be well before even her own uh, spinal cord injury. And so we asked her if she would just lead the group. Now we'd been meeting by by Zoom. One of the advantages of the work we do is that we've been virtual since long before COVID. So in that sense, we didn't really miss a beat. And and we asked, you know, in in the COVID era. So I think it was, you know, still in March, probably uh, or very early in April, that uh, we asked her to lead us in sort of mindfulness practice as a part of that meeting. Uh, you know, so an ordinary business meeting. And we took, I think, the first time five minutes and maybe agreed that we'd like to have a few more, so expanded it to like seven or eight. And, you know, after we kind of went over the agenda and, and opened up the meeting. And I think, the, you know, the reaction from people, most of whom had not really experienced mindfulness practice previously, was really positive. People thought this was great. It was helpful. Um, I mean, I remember a palpable sense of just feeling more relaxed, more chilled out, and better able to tackle than the remaining sort of business topics uh, for that meeting having done that practice. So we observed as a group that it was really helping us and thought and talked a little bit about why that might be. And then the idea bubbled up to the 
the other project team meetings that we'd been having that Susan mentioned. And a few people, I think, individually, kind of, or, 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 or you know, separately, had the idea and shared it with each other that, hey, why don't we see if we can make this uh, more widely available? But these sessions are led by someone living with spinal cord injury for people with spinal cord injury. Uh, and that's really important in the way that Mary Jo has designed it. So that's, I guess, a, the second piece of the, of the background. Uh, you know, Susan saw the opportunity uh, and the need, and then this idea kind of bubbled up from the team, you know, and, and Susan wrote the grant, and it was a rapid thing, and, and it got funded. And, and so we've been doing it now for, you know, three months. And I, th I think people find it really useful. I've found, you know, mindfulness to be incredibly helpful. And I think um, one of the things, one of the things too that distinguishes the program when we um, when we set it up is that at the end of the session there's a Q and A, and because again there are thousands of mindfulness apps that are available to people, and again we wanted something really specific for people with uh, with spinal cord injury, and and in fact the feedback that we've gotten is those. Q&A sessions are actually also extremely helpful to people and really valued because they're talking to peers. And, and we've had people from all over the world attend the sessions. Our target was actually really just uh, Canada and, and the U.S., but, but there's participation from, from all over. So that was also really, really nice to see. Yeah, it's great that you have like that real-time feedback to allow the participants to help tailor the program to fit their needs um, and, and sort of really address, you know, the areas of concerns that they might have. Um, so thank you very much for telling us about that program. It sounds like a really, uh, really useful resource. Um, and I hope that you guys do continue to um, carry that forward, um, even as we sort of see restrictions ease up, um, as it's sure it's a, it's a great coping strategy that people can use outside of a pandemic. Obviously, it probably has a bit more necessity, but it's definitely something that people can have moving forward in their in their back pocket to kind of help them cope with different sort of instances that may appear throughout their lives. Do you think we will be seeing some positive things emerge from this pandemic that could benefit people with disabilities? So some examples are like online learning or like remote access or remote offices for work or virtual healthcare tools. What are your thoughts on that? I, I think one of the things that and we're already seeing it is the, um, the virtual care, being able to now call your doctor and then they can call the pharmacy and refill your prescription. Before you actually had to go to the doctor, make an appointment and, and get that prescription refilled. So, you know, in a lot of cases where you had to jump through a lot of hoops in the healthcare system just to get some basic services and you can't you know can't they do this in a more efficient manner it seems kind of like ridiculous um now we're actually seeing some some changes i'd say in the in, in the right direction so i think how care is going to be delivered in the next decade is going to change uh, dramatically and I think that's been one of the silver linings out of this whole experience. Anything you'd like to add, John? Yeah, I just agreed, absolutely. And, and I think all the things uh, you mentioned, Annalisa, are, 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 
are those are I you know check to all of those. Um, I think the more that um, interaction is mediated virtually, then you know that's right right away a barrier that's removed uh, for people living with disabilities. And you know I'm kind of excited to think that you know next time I, I look for a job, I will appear. You know, if that's uh, if the interview happens on camera, the same as any other applicant, right? So I won't have to go through that awkward thing of like going to shake the person's hand and they have to like you know bend over and you know all of a sudden it's like oh yeah you're a disabled person and you know I, ha I have vivid memories the last time I went through the gamut of, of job search of, of how sort of alienating that experience was and how it it foregrounded my difference. Um, so there's just a little example, I think, of how we've all, as a society, gotten comfortable with relating in this different way that I think, you know, kind of inherently takes away some of the barriers and, and disadvantages. So I'm, I'm really excited about that. And I think, you know, um, I mean, just the, the podcast that we're doing right now, I think, you know, different ways of sharing information. I think that's all positive for the community. So, yeah, I am actually kind of excited that as we get through this, um, you know, new opportunities are going to open up. Yeah, and I think another thing, just to build on that, John, too, is um, sort of what we call e-health literacy, you know, in terms of people being on, on Zoom, for example, and video conferencing with, with our project. In fact, we'd have some individuals, because ours is actually, it's, it's a video conferencing platform, but you'd have people that, you know, oh, I can't manage the technology and, it's, you know, it's an iPad. You know, it'll be much easier if we do this over, you know, over over the phone or health coaching, for example. And now we're, we're finding that when we're enrolling subjects, that people are so much more comfortable with, with technology than they were before, because this is how we're communicating with everybody on kind of like now a daily basis. So I think that's another thing where we're going to see a huge shift. It's great. Yeah, hopefully uh, we can sort of take some some lessons and some of the tools that we've had, we've been forced to adopt, but actually really integrate them into society. And by doing so, we kind of, we, we remove those barriers and, and create more an accessible uh, world for everyone. Well, thanks so much for all of the, the thoughts and stories that you've shared with us. I definitely learned a lot about how COVID-19 has impacted those living with disabilities. And I'm sure our listeners really appreciate that as well. Thanks everyone for tuning into part three of the Rehab Inc. podcast COVID-19 miniseries. We would like to thank the University of Toronto for their generous support in funding this miniseries with the COVID-19 Student Engagement Award. We hope you enjoyed this episode on how the pandemic has impacted the lives of people with disabilities. Stay tuned for future episodes and be sure to check out the Rehab Inc. podcast on Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play Music. If you'd like to learn more about Rehabilitation Science Research or Rehab Inc., you can visit our website at www.rehabincmag.com. Until next time.